Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I have followed kind of from a distance the decluttering trend. We've hit it in a, you know, in a few little ways on this show throughout the years. But I I never really thought I would dedicate a whole episode to the issue of decluttering because I thought maybe it wasn't fully germane. But then I found out that my friend uh, and somebody I really admire, Gretchen Rubin, who's a writer on all things happiness and human nature uh, and a very smart and very serious person, I found out that she had written a whole book about decluttering. It's called Outer Order, Inner Calm. And I thought, okay – Maybe we ought to take this more seriously. So I brought her in to talk about it, and I walked away really convinced that there's there's something here that the that there is a connection between your environment and your mental well being, and that there are actionable steps you can take that don't require major life surgery in order to bring some outer order that will produce, as Gretchen says, some inner calm. So this conversation was fantastic, and as you'll hear, she's just crackling with intelligence and eagerness to help, and we cover all sorts of issues when it, when it comes to decluttering her techniques, which which go by such names as the one-minute rule, the X-factor test, uh, and things like that. We talk about the difference between her approach and that of Marie Kondo, uh, who's got that massive decluttering bestseller the the i think it's called the life-changing magic of tidying up and also she has that big new show on netflix so we talk about the difference between gretchen's approach and marie's we talk about procrastinate clearing how you some people uh, clean up as a way to procrastinate instead of doing what they need to do we talk about the impact of having a clean desk on people who need to do creative work we talk about how decluttering can reduce conflict in interpersonal relationships at the office and also probably more importantly, at home. And we talk about ways you can hack your shopping so that decluttering doesn't ha- that, that decluttering is less necessary ultimately. Because she's so interesting, I also at the end verge into, uh, into some, uh, we, we veer off into some other topics, including mindless eating, which is a t- subject that she and I have explored before. And we talk about happiness in the era of Trump. Uh, so a lot to get to with Gretchen Rubin, and I look forward to bringing that to you. First, just a very uh, two very quick items of business. Just want to tell you about a couple new things that are up on the Ten Percent Happier app. We've got a new meditation from Seven A Selassie, uh, one of our most popular teachers, on beginning your day with gratitude. Uh, let me just say, on behalf of gratitude, and I think I've said this in the podcast before, but it bears repeating. It's one of those th- concepts that can be presented in a rather treacly annoying way, but in fact, is uh, there's a lot of science to suggest that gratitude has profound impacts on the mind. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing and using 7A's meditation on that. It's called Begin with Gratitude. And then uh, another new meditation from one of my favorites, my good friend Jay Michelson. It's called Rest Your Mind, and it's designed for people like me who are striving, over-efforting, pushing too hard in their meditation And this is a meditation designed to help you kind of chill out and assure you that you're doing it right. Don't worry about, you know, winning at meditation. Just something I need to hear over and over again. So check those out on the 10% Happier app. Back now to Gretchen, just a little bit on her bio. 
Um, I'm going to read you the first line of her official bio. Uh, Gretchen Rubin is one of today's most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness and human nature. She's known for her ability to distill and convey complex ideas with humor and clarity in a way that is accessible to a wide audience. And she certainly has reached a wide audience. Uh, she's had several huge bestsellers. The first one uh, that really you know put her on the map was called The Happiness Project, number one New York Times bestseller. I think it's been two years on the list. And then she wrote some books about habit change, which are utterly fascinating. They're called one is called Better Than Before, and the other is called Four The Four Tendencies. Um, I've had her on the show before. She this is her third time on the show. So if you want to go back and listen to her talk about the Happiness Project, that's episode fifteen. And then if you want to listen to her talk about habit formation, that's episode ninety-nine. Interestingly, Gretchen does not meditate. She's kind of dabbled with it. We don't really get in. In in past episodes, we talk about her various misadventures with meditation. We don't get into it in this one. But you're not going to hear, just listener alert, much about meditation here. But you're going to hear from somebody who knows a ton about mental well-being and ways to train the mind that are beyond the cushion. So I highly recommend this one. Here we go. Here's Gretchen. Great to see you again. Oh, I'm so happy to be talking to you again. Very rare that we bring somebody on as many times as you've been on, but you, I mean, I have no second thoughts about it. I'm really happy to have you back. Well, thank you. I feel like we could talk all day, so I really appreciate the let's, chance let's to put come that back in. <laughs> so, so um, congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm just curious, is it, are, are you at all hesitant to be putting out a book about decluttering in the era of Kondo? Oh, of Marie Kondo. Well, I love Marie Kondo. I'm one of her number one fans. Like, I binge-watched the show in two days, and um, I only recommend three books at the end of uh, Outer Order and Recall, and hers is one of them. But the thing about Marie Kondo is that she really has one way, the Con Marie way, and it's a way that is super successful for a lot of people, obviously. But it doesn't work for everyone, And I think sometimes people feel bad about themselves or they feel like they failed if they can't do something the right way or the best way, or they never get started because they're like, I just can't handle the thought of taking out every, you know, every coat that I own and putting it in a big pile. Um, And my, my view is that there's a lot of ways that people can succeed. There's a lot of different ways that we can achieve our aims. And so what I try to do in my book is to say, you could do it this way or that way. You could try this or you could try that. And so that people can pick and choose the things that strike a chord with them, um, rather than saying, I'm going to tell you the best way. Now, some people do want to be told how to do it and to follow instructions. But then I think for some people, that just doesn't work as well. Like for one thing, um, one of Marie Kondo's things is you should empty out your bag every day. Now, that just doesn't make sense for me. I use, I, I just That just isn't a good use of my time or energy. But she really, really fervently recommends it as a practice. I'm sure for some people it's great. And I'm like, you could do that or maybe not. You know, um, So it's a little bit more pick and choose. Let me just step back for a second because I want to dive into your way in a yeah. second or, or your sort of flexible way. But why – what is the – you're an expert. You've written about happiness. Mm-hmm. Why – what is the connection between decluttering <laughs> yes. and being happy? Well, see, this is so interesting. Okay, because 10 years ago – I wrote The Happiness Project, and ever since then, I've Great been, book. Thank you. I've been writing and researching and talking to people about happiness, good habits, human nature. And what I noticed was that I'd be talking about things like eating right or making time for yourself or reconnecting with the people that you love or, you know, all kinds of things to make you happier, have good habits. And people would be very interested and very engaged. But then whenever issues related to outer order came up, 
people got very energized. Like it was clear there was like an extra emotional charge around these issues. And that just really puzzled me. Like when I would speak to a group and I would talk about making your bed, people would laugh. They would sort of talk amongst themselves. I could feel that there was something special going on in this area. And that just, it surprised me because I think we can all agree that in the context of a happy life, a crowded coat closet is trivial. Um, So I wanted to understand why that was, because I felt it myself in my own life. Why, Why was that feeling there? And then also, given that we do feel this extra energy around outer order, how can we create it and then maintain it? Because it does seem like it matters more really than it ought to matter. It really does matter. But what, why is that? Why do you think it matters so much? Well, part of it is I think life is easier. You can find things. You can put things away. You don't buy duplicates. Um, you have less conflict with other people. You have more space. Um, a lot of times clearing clutter eliminates bad feelings because we have a lot of feelings tied up in our objects. So like maybe I feel guilty because I shouldn't have spent so money, much money on this pair of pants that I never wore. If I give away those pair of pants, the bad feeling goes away. Or maybe this is an unfinished project. Okay, I thought I was going to do this origami, but I'm not. It just sits here. makes me feel bad. Or maybe there's a fantasy self that I've bought things. Oh, I bought a guitar and a music stand and some music because I'm totally going to learn how to play the guitar. But I'm not. That's a fantasy self. I'm not going to learn to play the guitar. So, getting, so as it sits there, it makes you feel guilty. As it sits there, it. yeah. It's this kind of un, un, unfinished business. And if we get rid of those things, give them away, donate them, recycle them, toss them, then we get them off our shelves and off our conscience. We're not surrounded by ghosts. Exactly. Ghosts of the past. Oh, remember when we used this big plastic slide? Well, we don't anymore, so why is it still here? Or the fantasy self. Or Yeah. So there's a lot of bad feeling that can go away. Um, there is um, – we also – when we clear clutter, we get more energized with the things that we have, and that feels good. It's like I know exactly what I have. Um, I can use everything I have. Um there's a very surprising thing that ha- – because my, my sister calls me a happiness bully, and I do constantly try to force myself on my friends to help them clear clutter because I love to help. T- but I love – I mean, you've never talked to me about decluttering, but you have give me ideas all the time. Yeah. And often they're – I didn't solicit the ideas, but I really like that. It's one of the things I like you about – so if that's bullying, yeah. I'm happy to be bullied. I, okay, good. I'm a happiness nudge. Yes. <laughs> But then what's yeah. more useful yeah. than that? Yeah, no, well, it's good. Well, I mean, and here it, here it is with my friends. One thing that I've noticed, and I've experienced this myself, and it's very kind of paradoxical, is I'll be with a friend. We'll be clearing out a closet. We'll take away two giant bags to give away. You actually do this? Like, oh, well, anytime. I will come over to your house tomorrow. Like, this is my favorite thing to do. Like, please <laughs> let me come over. Um, and um, But people will, so we'll take all this stuff out of their closet, and they'll look at their closet, and they'll say, wow, I feel like I have so much more to wear. Because they're energized. Because the, those things, they've, they know what they have. They want what they have. It fits. It works. You get rid of all this stuff that's just sort of clogging your vision and slowing you down. Then you feel more engaged with what you have. And that's a really good feeling. Like if you get rid of all the stuff in your kitchen that you never use, then you're like, oh, I have so much stuff to cook with. Because you don't see, I literally found two garlic presses in our kitchen that we never, ever use. Not even just one garlic press that we never use. Two garlic presses that we never use. This was like two weeks ago. Um, it's, you know, and it's like, get rid of it. And then I can find the can opener, which I actually use. And then also we do project our identity into our environments with our possessions. You know, possessions remind us of the people and places and activities that we love. And when we look into our surroundings and we like what we see, it just makes us feel better about ourselves because we're shaping our, our surroundings as part of who we are.
I think all that resonates with me for sure. The the I never read Marie Kondo's book, mm-hmm. and I'm not deeply attuned to the whole decluttering phenomenon, <laughs> yeah. um, for better or worse. But the, uh, what I do know, I think, is that her standard is you shouldn't keep anything that doesn't spark joy. Yes, that's is, what. Do you yeah. agree with that? Well, I think spark joy can be a very useful test, and often for many people, it is the best test. For me, I found, and I think this works for a lot of people, a test is, do I love it, do I use it, or do I need it? If I don't love it, use it, or need it, I probably don't want to keep it. So do I love it, meaning sometimes we have something that we just love, you know? Like, I have these vintage paper hats that are just gorgeous. I don't know what to do with them, but I love them, and I think I have enough room for that. And then there's the things you use, and I don't have a particular joyful or not joyful reaction to this pair of scissors, but it does its little job well. So here they are in the desk drawer and I use them. And then every once in a while, there's stuff that you need. You don't use it often, but from time to time, maybe you do need long underwear or you do need a tuxedo or you do need something that you don't use often, but when you need it, you need it. And you want to keep those things within reason. You don't want to have something for you know any possible eventuality. Um, but do I need it, use it, or love it? Often that lets you get, let go of things like the bread maker that you used once in five years or you know the pair of shoes that's so uncomfortable that you realistically just never find the occasion to put them on. You don't use them. You don't need them. You don't love them. They can go. All right. So that's one of your precepts. Mm-hmm. Take us further into the book. What else what – are, what are the other things you recommend and how do you go about making recommendations without a strict dogmatic – uh, uh, rigid approach. Well, so what I did is, um, so the the book the book isn't. It's like it, it's it's a hundred and fifty ideas, and they're written in these kind of short, accessible ways. So you can always just flip through it. You don't have to read it from beginning to end. I do have essay, like short essays introducing each section where I kind of lay out a framework. But a lot of people just pick and choose. And what has been really exciting for me, because what I wanted the book to be was like a psych-up book. You know, every once in a while you read a book and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't even want to finish this book. I just want to get going right now, you know. And um, and I was like, I just want people to, like, flip through it, get a few ideas. Like, I'm going to follow the one-minute rule or I'm, you know, I'm going to fo- use the X-factor test or um, – and uh, and then get going. Um, and um, I was very encouraged because after I recorded the audio book, um, after I did, I finished the recording, my director emailed me the next day with a before and after picture of the office because after I left, she was so fired up. She spent the rest of the day cleaning out her office. And so that's what I want. It's, it, it's just a bunch of ideas because a lot of times people – they want to get going. They just need some kind of framework um, or some some kind of idea. Like, uh, and and there's there's ones that are funny or ones that just try to help you frame it in a way that makes it better for you. That makes it um, feel more attainable. So here here's one interesting thing: is that sometimes people think, well, I should get rid of everything. But I don't want to. I should have a capsule wardrobe, but I like clothes. My boss tells me that a cluttered desk is a cluttered mind, but I like having a lot of stuff out of my mm. desk. And they feel like, well, there's something wrong with me. I should be minimal. It's like, no. Some people are simplicity lovers. Some people are abundance lovers. Some people like having a lot of things around. They like profusion and choices. Some people, you know, if you're the kind of person where, yes, there's paper all over my desk, but I can put my hands on exactly what I need in one second. I don't spend any time looking for something that's misplaced. I like that. It's like, that's great. That works for you. You don't have to change because it works for you. But it might not work for someone else. And But nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. But how do we understand ourselves 
better and understand other people better, too. Um, And then I try to throw out ideas that might solve conflicts. For instance, a big thing that comes up, and maybe you've experienced this because you work in an office, um, is sometimes there's clutter in an office because it's not clear who who it belongs to. So no one feels like they have the authority to like, oh, there's this dusty glass vase left over from when somebody got Valentine's flowers two years ago. But nobody's like, feels like, well, I can't be the one to go move that vase. That's not mine. I have no, I, I don't have, I shouldn't do that. Or like there's a pile of files in the corner and it's like, well, maybe they're trash, but maybe they're important. Well, the person who's belong, the files belong to left the, left the office a year ago, but nobody's figured that out. And so I say, like, maybe you need a chief clutter officer, like somebody who just goes around the office and has the authority to yeah. say, this doesn't belong here. Whose is this? You've got to deal with this. Like, like, because otherwise it just sits around because it's not anybody's problem and it's, and it's no one's um, and no one wants to uh, trample on someone else's stuff. You know, it's funny. We at I hadn't really crystallized this until recently, but at Nightline, mm. we got a new executive producer within the last year, Steve. Mm. And Steve uh, has a really nice aesthetic sense. Mm-hmm. And he kind of changed things up in terms of the way certain areas Ooh. were populated, but moved furniture around, you know, made some gathering spaces. He uh, upgraded the furniture in very simple ways, uh-huh. very kind of kind of nothing too elaborate, maybe a little piece of artwork here, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that just the experience is different. Yes. It's nice. It is because our surroundings do matter. Um, and it does, if you feel like you can move through the office without your eye being caught on a lot of visual noise, um, it's just easier and nicer and better. And um, and then you can find things more easily. You can put things away more easily. Um, I, I think a little bit of effort can really reap a lot of rewards. So you mentioned some things I want to follow up on. The one-minute rule. Okay. This is a great rule. So a lot of people are they say, I don't have any time, energy, or money to spend on clutter clearing. Like, I can't spend a day. I can't go to the container store or whatever. The one-minute rule is something that you can do just in the ordinary course of your day. Anything that you can do in less than a minute, do without delay. If you can hang up your coat, if you can print out a document and stick it in the right file folder, just do it without delay. This sounds very insignificant, but over and over people have said that this totally transformed their environments because it just gets rid of that scum of stuff on the on the surface of life, but it doesn't feel difficult. Like you're not you don't feel like you're asking yourself to do go very far out of your way. And but little by little, it's surprising how much more orderly things are in a really pleasing way and in a way that doesn't drain you. What's the X factor something you said? Oh, the X, X factor. factor test. The X factor test. Okay, so you know how sometimes you're trying to make up your mind whether to keep something or get rid of it. So say to your, use the X factor, which is if I were wearing this on the street and I ran into my ex, my ex boyfriend, my ex girlfriend, <laughs> oh, how would X I feel? Factor. Okay, the gotcha. Well, the funny thing is, I was I was on the subway and I j- just yesterday and I heard this woman saying, "Oh, I ran into my ex on the on the street and I like I didn't know what to do and of course I was wearing like my ugliest outfit." You know what I mean? This is the thing. So to say, like, would I want to be wearing this? Because you're like, oh no, gosh, would I be wearing that? And it's like, okay, probably you don't you want to get rid of it. Just having this random memory of like ten years ago having lunch with you. Yes, and I an remember ex girlfriend came over. Yeah, gave me a hug and we had a nice little conversation. Yeah. I hadn't seen her in a while, and you knew right. You, you somehow you knew right away that's your ex girlfriend. Yes, um, yes, yes. No, that I remember that vividly. Yes, uh, and you looked. I'm sure you were very snappily dressed, and you were probably very <laughs> glad that you had. Uh, no, yeah. And another another fun test is the three strikes you're out. 
Um, because of the endowment effect, we tend to overvalue the things that we have. Um, just because the endowment we, effect, the endowment effect, we endow things with special more meaning just because we own them more value. So, like, let's say you went to a bank and they were giving away promotional mugs. You would be like, eh, do I want a mug? Do I not want a mug? I don't know. So you take it. But once it's yours, you value it more than you would if you didn't own it. And that means that there's sort of a default to keeping things. Mm. But if three times it's occurred to you that maybe you don't want something, that maybe you could donate it or give it away or throw it away or recycle it, it's time. Like on the third time, you're like, okay, we're done here. No more debating. If you walk by a sweater and you're like, maybe I'll wear that sweater, but I don't know. And then you're like, do I like that sweater anymore? I could wear that sweater. And then the third time you're like, I don't know. What is it about that sweater? It's like done. Three times, it's out. You don't want that because you've overcome the endowment effect in your mind. It's clear. This thing this thing should go. So I've got a rack in my closet. I got the terrible closet in our apartment because, of course, Bianca gets the nice one. Yes. Um, and so I have this awkward, terrible closet. And there's a rack of shirts. Mm-hmm. And toward the back of the sh- uh, rack of the shirts, because it, it's – it's hard to access yes, the Yes, because back. it doesn't go all the way. Yes. yes. Um, there's all the shirts that I don't wear that much. Get rid of them. Yes. Oh, you'll feel so good. Because also, since you have kind of an awkward closet, you'll feel so much better about that awkward closet yes. if all that other stuff goes away. Well, and here's something also to ask yourself. Like, you've got five pairs of khaki pants. At what point do you wear the fifth favorite pair? You know, there's only like, unless the things are truly distinctive, it's like, how many shirts do you have that you actually like? Are you going to wear like your fifth? Most unfavorite shirt? No. You know, maybe keep one because you're going to do something where, you know, you're going to be eating a hot dog with ketchup and mustard and you think, okay, maybe I'm just going to explode everywhere. But probably you don't even need that. Do that shirtless. Yeah, 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 go, yeah, take it down. Um, But you will, but here's what I predict. If you get rid of those shirts, you will feel so good. Your closet experience will be much better and you will feel like you have more to wear. So let me ask, you, you said before that there are these little things we can do because yeah. the, the, the overall project can feel daunting. Yes. That, I think, is a thing for me that I'm so busy. Yes. I, I would say the biggest problem in my life is not having enough time. Yes. To, you know, I would do this with my wife because she loves this stuff. So yeah. I, if I asked her to do it, she'd be delighted. Yeah. But it just felt it would feel like a big process, yeah. which I'd probably end up enjoying but I keep telling myself, well, there's something else I should do now instead. But so here's what I would say if, if, if just you're in exactly your situation is you might say to your wife, like, can we take 10 minutes and just help me do like a speed round in my closet and just have her say this, 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 because maybe you just need somebody to like kind of hold you to it and take you through it very, very briefly because you don't have time. And if she really likes it, um, she probably would be very willing to do that and it would help you get through and if you did 10 minutes a day for a week, you would see a total transformation yes. of your stuff. Yes, that's actually right. And so what I do with my husband, because he likes clutter clearing, but he doesn't, he never just, it never occurs to him to do it. So every once in a while, I'll be like, want to go through your closet? And I'll hold up two pairs of pants or two whatevers at a time and just say yes, no. And and we get rid of things so quickly that way. And then one time I did it, and I he said, I have never seen that pair of pants before in my life. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to tell you. Somebody snuck in and put them here. But, like, he didn't even know he had them. You know, and so it's just that speed round. Not, you know, just – and I get it that you're so, so busy. The idea that you would take an afternoon and, like, let's go – let's or reorganize the kitchen. You're like, that's just never – that's not going to happen for, like, 15 years. 
but you can get a lot. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a short time, like an afternoon, and underestimate what we can do in a long term if we do a small amount consistently. So, you know, 10 minutes a day, especially if you're working with somebody else who can kind of like help you speed through it, um, you can get a ton done. So what about with kids? Because I have yeah. a four-year-old. He's a maximalist. He yeah. wants every hatchable yes. and transformer, yes. et cetera, et cetera. How yes. do we declutter with these little monsters? Yeah, well, you're in the season of stuff. I think it is helpful to just recognize there is there are seasons of stuff where there's – and little kids have a lot of stuff. They have a lot of equipment. They have a lot of toys. They have a lot of things like giant plastic slides. By the way, he doesn't always spark joy for me. I know. Yeah, it's like, okay, you got to keep him anyway. Um <laughs> One thing is uh, some children aren't um, uh, 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 don't object to to getting rid of some things, like especially because children like to get older and they don't necessarily want to keep things that they associate with being little. Um, You could maybe say, hey, would you like more room for your toys now? Let's go through these. Some children are like that. Some children want to keep everything. But you what you do see. And again, it's strange over and over when you take some toys away children tend to play more with the toys they have. Um, it's like, again, it's the sense of engagement and accessibility. And I think some children, too, I feel bad for them because, like, they're, I, you know, I talk to people who are complaining because their kids are messy and never put anything away. But I'm like, there's so much stuff here. It's like there's like 100 stuffed animals in here. How could you put them away? You as the adult have to figure out how to how to help them manage that. They just, you know, every grandparent, every aunt, every uncle, every birthday party, there's just like so much. They can't deal with it. Well, one of the things we've been doing, which I've been happy to see that he has embraced is, you know, there are kids out there who don't have as many yes. toys. Yes. Should we donate to them? Yes. And he's psyched for that. Yes. No, I think children are very, they really understand that they really get that. And as a, and as a parent, too, sometimes it's hard for parents to let go of things because anything that's been important to our children becomes important to us. And when you think about the fact that these toys can go and live with another child, um, and it can help you let go. I remember we did a huge clutter clearing um, and we got rid of like a lot of Fisher Price farm type things, you know. And it was hard for me because I was like, they're so nice. They're such good quality. Um, I, I have so many happy memories. A lot of these things were kind of like the toys I had had as a child. So it was all count, you know, tied up in that. But whatever. So we um, – and that can be sometimes hard to give away toys. Not all thrift stores will take to- stores, toys. So you have to make sure that you know a place to give. But there's a women's shelter that took toys. And so my husband, my daughters, and I t- went over there and were unloading. And I mean as soon as we brought a box out, there were mothers that were just coming running to grab the toys for their kids. And, you know, any sadness that I felt Mm. was totally redeemed by the thought that a child would be able to play with this Fisher-Price barn and get tremendous pleasure out of it, Um, especially a child who maybe didn't have a lot of things. And so if you think about your possessions going out into the world and, and serving, you know, living out their destiny more with somebody else who can really use them, it just, it's a lot easier. So that's the key thing. A key thing, it seems to me, with decluttering is no, don't you don't have to just throw this stuff out. You yeah, can yeah, give yeah. it away. Give it away. Yes, if you can, if you can find a recipient for it. Yeah, and there's thrift stores. There's all kinds of things that you can that you can do. Now, sometimes I think people get caught up too much in like trying to find the perfect beneficiary, like the the neighbor who has the child that's exactly the right size, or you know, it's like you want to have a few places that you can give a lot to. Um, 
uh, you know, like books in, in, in here in New York City, they do a, a drive where once a year they collect um, children's and picture books for uh, New York City school libraries. And this is just a wonderful thing. And like every year we just like take over all the books that for one, I, I read children's literature myself all the time. So I have a lot of books to give away. Good books, interesting books. And it's it's fantastic. So you sort of kind of need to keep your eye out for who are the who are what are the organizations that can take the things that you are giving? Uh, what, what's your view on minimalism? Because mm. this seems to be a big trend right now. So I think minimalism is something that some people like and is helpful for some people. And I get it because I'm sort of on that end of things, probably myself. But I don't think it's right for everyone. And so I don't think a capsule wardrobe is right for everyone. What's I, capsule wardrobe? A capsule wardrobe is when you, like, you have 15 items and they're all kind of like black, white, and gray or yeah. navy blue and cream. And, and it's like everything matches. And um, and it's just this idea that you can get by with very few things and that's actually easier. And uh, you know, you, then you can buy better quality. And for some people, that's fantastic. But minimalism, I think minimalism for its own sake – I just don't think that everybody wants to get there. And there are people who love collections and they love beautiful things and they want to be surrounded with beautiful things and they like to buy them and talk about them and show them to other people. And they like a lot in their life. And it's interesting because people will sometimes say to me like, well, what you consider to be pleasingly minimal kind of beautiful emptiness to me looks sterile and stripped and like a timeshare. Like, I wouldn't want to live in a place like that. It looks just so cold and, and so boring. And I'm like, that's right. Because for you, you want to be in a different environment. So I think minimalism is great if that is what you want. I don't think that minimalism is necessarily something that everybody wants or should aim for. Why do you think, though, that – and maybe I'm lumping these together inappropriately, and so correct me if I am. But it seems that both minimalism and decluttering – and there's mm. overlap in the Venn diagram mm-hmm. there – are really – hot right now. And so mm. what's going on in our culture mm-hmm. that these these ideas have taken hold? You know, I I think that part of it is that the world feels very, very noisy and there's sort of like a lot of incoming information and ideas. There's a lot of uncertainty. Things feel crowded and noisy and cacophonous. And I think that as a result, people are very attracted to something that would mean that they would have more serenity um, and ease in their everyday life. Now, again, you could be an abundance lover. An abundance lover doesn't want like a cord to to nothing lying on the floor or, you know, and plastic containers that don't that have lids that don't match. Like that's not abundance. That's still clutter. So even if you want to end up with abundance, if you get rid of everything that's clogging the system. But I think so whoever you whoever we're dealing with, I think this idea of like, I can't can't control the world, but I can control my surroundings. And can I bring more clarity and more ease and more spaciousness to my surroundings? I'm guessing now, but I think there are maybe two other contributing factors. Yes. What? One is I think you already touched on, but I think it's the. The digital cacophony of yes, our world yeah, that, yeah. that we feel so overwhelmed yeah. all the time mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that there this is endless. Yes, this yeah. provides a sense of agency. Yeah, and the other, and I, this was hit upon quite strenuously in in that movie Minimalism, uh, which was quite popular on Netflix. I only know that because I was actually randomly in it, and people <laughs> ask me about it all the time, even though I'm not a minimalist. Although I've become friends with the minimalists, the guys who made it. I think another thing is there's a, especially among young people right now. 
uh, a lot of serious questioning of capitalism mm-hmm. and its excesses. Well, I think I think and related to that is demographics. I think when you're a young person, it's much easier to be minimal. When you're 45 years old, you have 30, three kids and you just inherited all the stuff from your mom, uh, then you're kind of like, well, maybe I'm not in a minimalist mode. Like a lot of people are like, you just need a backpack and a tent and one copy of your favorite book and you can stride freely through the world. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work forever, man. Come back to me in 20 years and see how you're doing. Um, so I do think that part of it is also as the as, as our demographics are changing, many people are getting into a situation where they've got stuff coming at them from the bottom and from the top and they're dealing with it. But, yeah, I know I think the, the capitalism, absolutely the sharing culture, the idea I don't need to own it. I don't need I mean, I remember when people had huge collections of CDs and it was a major part of people's identity and how they projected themselves into the world. And when you met somebody, you would look at their CD collection just the way now you look at their book collection. Which even that, you know, people, this the idea that you need, there's all this stuff about how people, younger people aren't buying diamond rings. They're not buying, they're, they're renting their clothing instead of buying their clothing. So yeah, you're right. They're not acquiring in the way that we have historically been accustomed to. And, and that is as a consequence of and contributing to a different sense of clutter. And a sense also that, that the excesses of capitalism that, that we've been, Pushed around, and our uh, our innate desires mm-hmm. have been accentuated, mm-hmm. hyper accentuated mm-hmm. by marketing and mm-hmm. advertising, et cetera. One et cetera. click, one click purchase. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think all that's a very very good point. I think that's absolutely contributing to it. Yeah, and 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 the thing that's just strange to me, and I see, I just have seen it over and over and over. It just why is it that people just feel more calm and yet more energized? more focused and more with like they have more sense of possibility when they just go through their stuff and get rid of those things that they don't need use or love. It's just, it's, it's a friend of mine said, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. I was like, <laughs> I get it. You know, it seems like an utter non sequitur, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but you kind of know how that feels. <laughs> yes, right. I, I mean, sometimes now there is procrasticlearing. So there's, there's helpful preparation. <laughs> That's a term. Yeah. Well, Proclast- yeah, procrasticlearing. So, Helpful preparation is when you're like, I cleaned out the fridge, now I can switch careers. Or when you're like, you know, I need to start that annual report. So I'm just going to, I'm going to take some time and I'm going to get rid, you know, I'm just going to clear through my desk and we get everything ready. And now I'm focused and ready. That is great. Okay. So I feel, I'm going to, sorry to interrupt you, but I feel like my wife's going to kill me for saying this, but she's guilty of a little bit of this. So she's got a big project, but she can't get to it until she does every other little thing. Okay. That's procrastinating. Procrastinating is when, it's not that I'm just getting myself ready for something, but it's like, you know what? These bookshelves have been this way for three years and it never bothered me before. But now that I'm writing, I have to write the annual report. I feel like I cannot possibly start the annual report until these bookshelves are cleared out or like every inch of my, my apartment has to be spotless. That's not helpful preparation. That is procrastinating. And you always know if it's procrastinating if the minute that the task is done, all desire to deal with the clutter vanishes. Um, like my sister, who is very, very messy, says she only has procrastinator. If she has any desire to clear clutter at all, it is only as a procrastination device. And so she's like, never do it. You know what I mean? It's only it's only because she's trying to make excuses for herself. What for you as an individual is mm. the hardest part in this cluttering situation? Do you have a, an Achilles Yes, I do. Here? And it's clothes. It's, I use the floor robe, which is I just throw things on the floor, I have to say. And I have this like little table and the edge of us, uh, you know, some furniture. Um, 
I don't like to wear real clothes. I try to wear yoga pants all the time. Uh, it's a great sp- sign of my deference and my respect for you, Dan, that I'm actually wearing jeans here instead of yoga pants. Um, and, and just sort of in the course of my day, because I have sort of a weird schedule as a writer, that I just end up changing my clothes. Like, I'll have to dress for this and then dress for that and then dress for this and dress for that. And, like, my husband is so good. He just puts his clothes away. The minute he changes clothes, he just puts his clothes away. And I've really gotten much better about that. But that is my – that's my challenge. But here's what I've learned about myself. Because, again, my my view is that you really have to tailor your habits and your approach to your particular challenges and your interests and just kind of even the tempo of your day. And so what I realized is that I was trying to clear do put these clothes away at the end of the day, and I'm really a morning person. So the night is a time of very low energy for me, but I'm very high energy in the morning. And it's almost kind of like a restless energy at first. Like I'm walking my dog, I'm making coffee, like this sort of um, – I'm kind of burning that off. And so now when I have clothes, I will often do it first thing in the morning, which you think, well, you should go to bed with everything put away. And I'm like, but I find it much easier to do and much more pleasant to do as part of my morning. This is like I'm getting ready for my day. So I'm going to put away all the clothes from yesterday. That just works better with my personal energy cycle. What about you as a writer? I'm asking this. Let me just say up front for, with some self-interest. Um, <laughs> yeah. As a writer, I find that clearing clutter off my desk yeah. makes the writing process much easier. Yes, absolutely. No, and I'm one of these people where I will – I'm just constantly writing down notes. Yes. And I have three – you know, and um, I'll have documents out that are that are like, oh, I need to look at that. And this is to remind me about this. And I've got my running to-do list. And for some reason, I just take out pens one after another after another. I like end up with 15. Why well, can't use the same pen? I don't know. <laughs> um, and so what I do is a 10-minute closer. At the end of every – every time I leave my desk, I try to take 10 minutes and just put away the pens and the pen cups, put the documents back where they belong, you know, go through my to-do list and recopy it if, I, if I've gotten a lot of things done. So I just have the things that are undone. And I do find that it makes it much easier to focus. And also, like if I leave my office and come back, it makes it much more pleasant to reenter because yeah. part of it is like getting back in the chair, yeah. you know, and if there's a lot of just junk in the way or like I will sometimes because I like to post interesting articles to, in, in social media, I'll like, oh, here's, you know, a copy of a newspaper or, you know, magazine page that I ripped out that I want to be like, oh, I should look up that study and link to it or something. Um like just take 10 minutes and be like, do this, do this, do this, do this, get rid of it all and move forward. Yeah, it, It's funny how a little bit of an investment in clearing clutter and creating order can then I feel like really um, energize you. I keep using the word energy because for me, the idea of outer order is really, really connected to energy. It really can get you that energy and that focus to to sit down and tackle something like writing, which is very intellectually demanding um, you really it's the worst thing humans have ever invented. <laughs> you you talked before about about how decluttering can improve or reduce conflict in yes. the office. What about at home? Well, see, this is very interesting to me because um, it turns out that I'm more fortunate than I realized because my husband, as I mentioned, my husband Jamie and I are very well matched in terms of what level of order and disorder that we're comfortable with. And um, I didn't realize how rare that was. It's pretty unusual. It seems like with most couples, there's a pretty big gap between what person feels comfortable with and what the other person feels comfortable with. So it is a very common conflict. 
So um, one thing that you can do is you can make sure that each person has room of their own. Now, Virginia Woolf said everyone should have a room of their own. All That's writers. your sister. Uh, uh, Virginia Woolf said this. Oh, Virginia Woolf. Sorry. Yeah. Said, um, What's your sister's name again? Elizabeth Cross. Elizabeth, yes. yes. Um, You're the co-host with you of yeah, your podcast. Of my podcast, yes. yeah. Um, so Virginia Woolf said, you know, writers should have a room of their own. Um, and not everybody can have room of their own, especially like in New York City. But you can you have like a desk or an area where you can have your things – the way you want them, where nobody's going to borrow from you or put something there or clean it without your say-so. I think for some people who are disorderly, as long as if they have a place to put their things, then they can be more orderly in the public areas or the shared spaces. So can you find a place for them to have their – if they want to have an unfinished scrapbook out for a month, can they – is there a place for them to do that where it's not like the kitchen table? Um, another thing is to really watch out for clutter magnets. And these are the areas in our house where clutter just seems to accumulate. Like we have this place in our kitchen counter where this is just like the dump zone. And if you really are vigilant about every day getting everything out of that that clutter magnet, a lot of times you will stop that clutter from accumulating. Areas that are messy tend to get messier. And if people see there's a mess, they will just contribute to it. And so if you have somebody who's you're trying to encourage to be neater – if you get rid of those clutter magnets, a lot of times it's easier for them to manage their stuff. Mm. Um, and then things don't get lost as much and all that. Um, one thing that I love, um, if you ever have traveled with a family, one thing that used to drive me crazy is people were constantly, where's the sunglasses? Where are the room keys? Where's the map? Where's the sunscreen? So now whenever we travel, and I even do this by myself now, but mostly with the family, is I create a bowl of requirement, which is like the room of requirement in Harry Potter. And anything we have to keep track of, we keep in this bowl or on this tray. So the sunglasses, the AirPods, the wallet, the loose change, the, the, the room keys go there. And then, this is important, if you see something in some random place where somebody just randomly put it down, put it where it belongs in the bowl of requirement. Because when people travel, they don't have their usual habits of where they keep things. So things tend to get misplaced much more because they don't have the place where they usually keep their keys because they're in a completely different environment. So that's a way to manage things getting misplaced or lost in kind of the hubbub of a family vacation. I like that. More 10% happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. 
plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash Dan H. That's Indeed.com slash Dan H. Capital One is building a better bank, one that feels and acts nothing like a typical bank. That's why they're reimagining banking and building something completely different. They offer accounts with no fees or minimums. Capital One, this is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One N.A. Um, right before we came into the studio to record this, we were on the set of Weekend Good Morning America recording what we call Weekend Downloads, yes. which are these 90-second segments that so air. So fun. Uh, and, and we I, – they're like lightning rounds where yeah. I ask you a bunch of questions. I, th- I thought it would be worth going back into the the questions I asked you on, on GMA – here because okay. um, uh, you would give you a little bit more time. Oh, great. So w- one of the things we talked about was uh, an important thing w- in the fight against declutter is self-knowledge. Yes. So knowing w- how you accumulate, how you buy, why yes. you buy. Can you just unpack that first? Yes. Well, because when you understand yourself, you understand like why certain kinds of issues keep cropping up and then you can offset them or recognize them. Or if somebody else has a habit that you're finding really annoying, you can say like, oh, well, maybe this is what's going on. This is how I could perhaps help or discourage or at least understand it. So, for instance, um, one thing that comes up is that some people are overbuyers and some people are underbuyers. So overbuyers are the people who love to buy, who love to shop. If they're going on a trip, they're buying 50 things. If they're, they have a new baby, they're buying 100 things. They're, they're con- they buy lots of stores, you know, 15 tubes of toothpaste. Um, And they deal with clutter because they have to manage all this stuff. And then also maybe they can't even remember what they have. Or I have a friend who's an overbuyer and she had a new baby and she bought all the winter clothes for the baby. But of course the baby was bigger than expected and the growth and the, and that when, when it got cold that year, nothing fit and nothing worked at all. She bought an entire winter wardrobe that never fit her baby because she was just trying to, she was overbuying in advance. So overbuyers should think, you know, I don't need to prepare for everything. I can wait to see what I need. And I don't need to have so much deep stores. I don't need 15 tubes of toothpaste. You know, that's like lifetime supply. Then there are underbuyers. And underbuyers are people like me. I thought I was the only one, but it turns out there are many underbuyers. And these are people who just don't like to shop. They don't like to buy. Weirdly, they will often buy very, like like when I use saline solution all the time, I would buy one bottle at a time, even though it meant I had to go back and buy it more times because somehow I just didn't like the idea of buying three bottles at once. Why? It's irrational. I get it. Um, and they will often they don't like things that are over specialized. Like I didn't never had bought um, like facial tissue until I had a family because I was like, just blow your nose in toilet paper. Like who that's, who needs a special product for that? You know, or why would I use hair conditioner? It's, it's like too specialized. Anyway. Um, so over and overbuyers often won't get something until they absolutely, absolutely have to have it. So it's like, but if you try to go buy mittens in the middle of February, they might not have mittens the way they would have. These you are know, underbuyers. Yeah. Underbuyers. underbuyers like yeah. they don't, they're always buying things at the last minute. They're like, oh, I need ski pants for my ski trip tomorrow. Oh, they don't have my size. It's like, yeah. Cause you put it off for so long that now you have this big problem. 
Um, and But you would think, well, underwires probably don't have clutter because they don't want to buy things. But the problem with underwires is they hate the idea of going out and buying something so much that they will keep everything for fear that, oh, well, what if one day I decided I did want that electric pur- purple sweater and then I had to go get one. So I should just hang on to this one, even though I haven't worn it in five years and I don't even like it. So underbuyers have to remind themselves, like, it's okay to buy. You will feel better if you make, if you take the time, really push yourself to buy, you know, enough to carry you over. And if there's something that you really, really are not using, you should let it go because the occasion may never arise when you need it. And if so, you can go to a mall. It is possible. It will not kill you. It strikes me as I sit here and listen to you talk, as we've done this many times, that you were saying Marie Kondo has this sort of one-size-fits-all approach, but you've you've talked about a way broader set of issues in your career than mm-hmm. decluttering. Yes. I, now we're talking this about decluttering. Like, yeah. We've talked about habit formation, and, and uh, we've talked about general yeah. happiness. You you, uh, you you strike me, and I don't know if this is a analogy you will like or not, like a <laughs> Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Just, I mean, like, I rat a tat tat. I can throw any question at you, and oh. you will have like six really insanely useful things to say. Oh. Does, that, does that land for you? Oh, well, that's so nice to hear. I hope so. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to think of myself as a Swiss Army knife. Um, I mean, the thing is, my my subject is human nature. Like, that's what I'm always thinking about. And so it's sort of like, you know, at one time, I'll get really, really interested in habits and how habits, you know, that's just one slice of human nature. But then through it, you see a lot of other things about human nature. And again, outer order feels like this kind of postage stamp on the large parcel of uh, human nature. But but there's a lot to be learned. Um, I've always, ever since, as as long as I can remember, and certainly in law school, I've been really, really interested in people's relationships to possessions. Why, how do we feel about the things that we own? Um, And this was a big element in Happier at Home, my book about home. Um, But I've always, I feel like, I feel like that's so interesting. So I was really happy to have the opportunity to really think about in this way. This isn't even just about possessions generally, but just about the things that we really don't want. Swiss Army Knife isn't, maybe it's the right analogy, but, but part of what you do is, you talk about these super, almost superficial things that we can do. Mm. Oh, yeah, put a, get a bowl of requirement. Yeah, I know, but, I know, But I know, it's I know. also connected yeah. to deep human needs. Well, that is true. And, you know, it's funny, but it's like if the bowl of requirement means that your family vacation is full of fun and tenderness and lightheartedness instead of everybody being incredibly cranky because you had to spend 45 minutes looking for, you know, somebody's phone – that is going to have a benefit. I mean, it's just like you and I have often talked about the importance of sleep. The thing is, if you are really chronically underslept, everything in your life is going to be harder. Your relationship sucks. Everything's going to be either relationships are going to be harder. Eating is going to be harder. Exercising is going to be harder. Making fun plans is going to be harder. Everything is going to be harder. And it's like, oh, set a snooze alarm to go to bed on time. It's like, that sounds like, okay, that's not rocket science. No, it's not rocket science. But that's what I think is really encouraging. Because a lot of times we really can get to these more transcendent values, like our affection and love for other people, our ability to manage ourselves and to show self-mastery, our ability to ask more from ourselves, really is very often tied to these little day-to-day things and the fact is, you really might be able to write your book more easily if you cleaned off all the junk on your cork board that's just kind of visually overstimulating you every, out of the corner of your eye every time you look at it. 
it's a small thing, but it's the irritant. It's a little bit of sand that if you got it out of the works, just might make it a little bit easier. And to me, it's, it feels like low hanging fruit from a lot of the things that I write about. They're things that you can do without a lot of time, energy or money. So like, why wouldn't you just make your life easier and then happier, healthier, more creative, more productive with these little things? Yeah. It's creating the conditions. Yes, 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 for, yes. That's the way to put it. Uh, for us to, as you yes. said before, access our deeper values. Yes. Yes. There's a researcher I've long wanted to have on the show. I haven't had her on yet. Christine Porath, I believe her name is, at Georgetown, and she writes about civility. Yes. And one, of, I think I said this to you when we were chatting before we started recording, but one of the first things she will apparently tell people when they're asking about how to either be more civil themselves or create a more civil environment in their workplace or home, and she'll just say, get more sleep. <gasps> there right? you because go. The, the, it is about creating the structures in yes. your life that will – Yes. I, you know, we've, we've talked about this as well, and my listeners will know – I had this 360 review yes. a while ago. It was very yes. damaging. Not yeah. damaging. It was, it was very, very damning in some ways, but also incredibly important and meaningful. And there are a lot of levels to the steps that I'm taking subsequently. Yeah. But some of the levels are seemingly superficial yeah. about making sure I'm, I have enough time to get enough sleep and exercise and play time with my son and my wife, making sure that my professional commitments are in order and, yes. and orderly and not I'm not overcommitted, et cetera, et cetera, which these are not characterological no, no, or no, spiritual no, spiritual no. things, but they create the, the conditions to go deeper. And when I see that in a lot of your work. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And it's it's by and also sometimes the transcendent values are more abstract. And but by doing these concrete things, we we kind of give ourselves the bandwidth to turn outward and to think about more transcendent issues and to think about the problems of the world. You know, sometimes people think like, oh, if you take the time to work on yourself and do self-care and, you know, that you, if you're too worried about getting your own sleep, well, you're just it's just selfish and spoiled. Um, or they think that in a world so full of suffering, it's really not morally appropriate to think about your own happiness or your own, you know, whatever. Um, but really what research shows is that happier people are more interested in the problems of the world. They're more interested in the problems of, of, of the people around them. They're more likely to donate money or volunteer time or to vote. Um, turns out that being happier and well-rested and having energy doesn't make people want to drink Mai Tais on the beach. It makes them want to go register people to vote, you know. Um, so really there is – and you talk about this all the time that it's like we take care of ourselves and that allows us to turn outward. And yeah. uh, if we don't do that, if we don't do that um, – and again, like part of it is like letting yourself, your body get run down. But then letting your your space get out of control where you can't find anything that you need, where everything like, – like for you to put your shirt back in is just – it's you have to jam it in there so hard. I mean these things just – they accumulate over time. They just It's a death of a thousand cuts. Um, and, yeah. and as you said before, something that resonated with me and much of what you say does. But one thing that stood out that I didn't comment on was when you're talking about making your desk a pleasant place to work so yeah. that you can go back to work. To, yes, I think yes. you said get back in the chair. Yeah. Well, many of us are engaged in work that we feel is important in the world. And if our physical environment is actually an obstacle yes. to us engaging in that yes. work, well, then we ought to think about yes. decluttering, even though it may seem like something you would binge watch on Netflix and yeah. therefore not super yeah. Uh, deep. Yeah, yeah. Well, and just you talking about how a new boss 
made small but significant changes that just made it more pleasant. Well, it's like, well, now maybe people will sort of sit in the sitting area and like have a 10 minute conversation. And then that's going to deepen people's personal connections. And what all the research shows is that when you say to people, are you happy at work? One of the biggest factors is, do I have a friend at work? Do I feel warm, warmly? Do I feel connected to the people that I work with? Do I feel like they really care about me as a person, not just as a person filling this role? And so these little things actually end up having reverberations in, uh, you know, higher aspects of our lives. I want to move on to some non-decluttering stuff. But but before I do that, you said before, uh, I said before that I wanted to talk about the stuff that we talked about on GMA. Another thing we talked about on GMA was there's something about hacking the way we shop that can uh, reduce clutter. So can you go into your shopping tips? Yeah. So one shop, one shopping tip is if you, uh, this is especially useful for overbuyers, but anybody who kind of uh, shops thinking, well, maybe I'll need this or this could come in handy or I should stock up on this um, is to remind yourself, you can always store it at the store. Yes, it might be come in handy, but you can just leave it where it is. You know that it's there. You'll store it at the store and then whenever you want to go get it, you can go get it. Um, so that's one way to resist shopping. Another is um, impulse purchases online. Many people get into that kind of 11 p.m., one glass of wine, clicking around the Internet, doing online shopping and make a lot of impulse purchases that end up being things that they don't need, use or love. So one thing you can do is to eliminate your accounts so that you are always shopping as a guest. So if you really want something and need something, you will go through the steps of entering your shipping information, your billing information, your credit card information every time. Or you might just be like, oh, my gosh, I'm too tired. If, you know, I'll wait till the morning. And then when the morning comes, probably you'll never think about that item again. Um, now, if you're in a store, um, because just like online, stores are carefully designed to try to tempt us at every turn. Uh, do not take a basket or a cart if you can possibly avoid it because the more inc- – again, it's about inconvenience. The more inconvenient it is to add things to your pile and the more of a nuisance it is to walk through the store holding it, the more likely you are to decide, you know what? I don't need that right now. If I need it, I can get it another time because uh, the easier it is, the more inclined we are to just throw things in and without even giving it a second thought. You know, you come home from the store and you're like, oh, my gosh, I completely forgot about that thing. Yeah, you could just have not bought it. <laughs> um, you, you said something to me before we started recording that that is interesting. You and I have talked a lot about eating. Yes. And in particular, sugar. Yeah, we have kind uh, of the same. Wiring. Yes. For sure. And you said, and, and, and you didn't explain it, so I'm going to get you to explain it now, that actually decluttering can help with the overeating. Yes. Talk about that. Okay, so – One of the things about eating healthfully is that it comes from a sense of self-mastery. And in my book, Better Than Before, which is all about habit change, I talk about all the ways you can go about trying to change a habit. There's a lot of different ways, different approaches you can use. But at the foundation of all these is the idea that you you are using self-mastery. You're asking yourself to do one thing and not another. Um, And so for self-mastery, again, sleeping is really important for self-mastery, getting a little bit of exercise, these things that keep your energy up. Also, your environment can tr- contribute to your self-mastery and because partly because of how you engage with it and then also partly about like the identity that it's reflecting back to you. So just imagine yourself. Just imagine yourself walking through your kitchen, just your own kitchen at 10 p.m. tonight. And there's a bag of open potato chips on the counter. And if you open the refrigerator, there's like leftovers, but the tinfoil isn't 
quite down on some of them. And you open up a cabinet and there's like a Pepperidge Farm cookies packaged like with the flute open at the ready. And you're thinking, you know, I'll just have like or maybe there's like a bag of chocolate covered raisins like in a plastic bag. And you're like, I'll just take a handful. You know, I'll just take a few chips. I'm just wandering through what's in here. Um, And it doesn't contribute to your sense of self-mastery. If you walked into your kitchen and everything was closed tight, the cookies were closed tight and on a high shelf, the potato chips were closed tightly and on a high shelf, the leftovers were all put away nicely, the counters were wiped, the cabinets were closed, and the door was off. I mean, the light was off. And you walk into that kitchen. Do you think you'd be like, oh, now I'm going to grab a hand, like, I'll just take one cookie. I'll just grab a handful of chips. You just wouldn't. You, it would take a lot more. You would have to overcome many boundaries. And it's just like everything's been put away. It feels much more like, am I acting? Because since everything is orderly and in its place, and here's another thing you can do, brush your teeth. Because again, brushing your teeth, it's like, oh, I, I already brushed my teeth. Are you, am I now going to eat that cookie? When I start, I came to that, I feel yes. on my own, actually. It's that a has great yes. thing. Well, I think on a number of ways. Once it creates that feeling in your mouth that then kind of turn, it, it, it's, it sort of makes you not want to eat. I don't know. Um, I think it also signals to the body, we're done. Like I've brushed my teeth. It's after dinner. We brushed our teeth. It's done. And it sort of puts you out of the mindset of grazing. Because some people, and I used to do this myself, so I know exactly how it is. It's like you have dinner, but then like then there's the nine o'clock snack, then there's the ten o'clock. Well, you just That's wander me still. through. My you wife know? and I struggle with this mightily. So try closing down your kitchen. Put everything away. Cl- close the. Do you, have, do you have a door to your kitchen or no? no? Okay. Well, at least turn off the lights. Just shut it down. It's like and this, brushing your teeth and, and brushing your, teeth. your teeth. Like brushing really... your teeth, flossing your teeth. Because it's again, it's like that part of the day is over. Eating time is over. And we are now headed to bed. You could even put on your pajamas because it's like. Now we Actually, are. Actually, when I'm home, I never take off my pajamas. Just, just okay. Yes, there you go. Right. Yoga pants. Uh, that's an acceptable alternative to yoga pants. Is pajamas. <laughs> um, but it, but again, it's the self mastery. And then also, when everything is put away easily, um, y- you are more inclined to put stuff away. I think a lot of times people don't put things away because it's hard to put them things away. You know, because there's just like too much stuff jammed in there. But if you really go through, and everything's just put in its place. It just um, there's just an orderly sense, and the fact that your environment is orderly makes you feel more orderly. Also, it makes you feel more in command of yourself. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that it really can it really can help. And also, you know, one of the things, and I, I feel like this very much with food, is if you see it, it occurs to you that you want it. If you don't see it, you can you can forget about it much more easily than Definitely. you think. I would see this with my children because they'll like make a pan of brownies and you're like, you literally just made this pan of br- pan of brownies, but I put it away. I just covered up. I put it on the shelf. They don't think about it, you know, until they're like, oh, you know, yeah, I, you know, but if not, if it's just sitting on the counter, people could be eating brownies all day long. This happened to me last night. I ate a healthy dinner, but then there was like pretzels and bread all out on the table on the counter and all, it occurred to me that I wanted it yeah, and see, I ate a ton and but, then I hated myself. But see, and even if you hadn't eaten any of it, you would have had to be like, don't eat the pretzels, don't eat the bread, don't eat the yes. pretzels, don't eat the it's bread. A, it's a lot of friction. It's a lot of friction. Now, that's why I be, uh, for me, it's easier just to never eat it at all because then I'm not tempted by the pretzels because I never eat pretzels. Am I going to have a pretzel? No, because I don't eat pretzels. So that that's my solution. Um, but for most people, it's easier just out of sight, out of mind. That really, really works with temptation. But the, so the 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 abs, utter complete abstinence route, which you talked me into, 
you bullied me, kind of, and, and, and the not and not pejorative uh, in the best sense of the term bully. The giving up sugar forever thing has made a huge difference because now we do have because I have a four year old. There's there's little yeah. sweet things all over the place, but it's not an option. So yes. I'm not struggling as much. Yes. I do want it. Yeah, I do, but. Uh, and, and I work on Good Morning America, and, and they're all constantly bringing out little oh, sugary things. TV and, is terrible. TV yeah. is – my sister's a TV writer, and it's – she talks about the evil donut bringer, like the person who's like, and on top of everything else we have, I'm bringing in donuts. Yes, yes. You know, and then you – yeah. And so it's all over the place. But being a guy who doesn't eat sugar anymore, as you yeah. advise me to be, has really changed that. Well, and because if you just don't eat it, then a lot of the the – the decision fatigue right. of resistance, deciding yes, no, now, later, one, two, three, it's my birthday, it's raining, this is one of a kind, these are the best, they're the, you know, these were flown in from Los Angeles from the best cupcake maker in the world. You're just like, yeah, I don't need sugar. <laughs> you know, so those cupcakes look great, but I don't need sugar. Right. And I think for people like you and me who have really, really serious sweet tooths, it's like you don't want the minute that sweet tooth gets activated, it's on. I'm oh, like, yeah. I don't want to have one bite because now I can't have like what I will have is like, let's say somebody's having a weird ice cream flavor, like creamed corn ice cream or something like that. I will have a bite of that because I just want to know what it tastes like. But I wouldn't have like, I'm going to have a bite. I won't have one bite of a chocolate chip cookie because then I'm like, then I'll just want a whole, then I'll want a whole cookie and then I'll want 10 cookies. And it's just too boring. It's just too boring to have those thoughts. It's just easier not to have any. But this doesn't work for everyone. We should be clear. This is abstainer. And we're talking about abstainers. Abstainers are people for whom it's easier to give up things altogether. They can have none or they can have like 15, but it's very hard for them to have a little bit. But there are moderators. This is a thing. People, some people are moderators. They do better when they have a little bit, when they have something sometimes. Um, and they get kind of panicky and rebellious when they're told they can never have something. And like our on our podcast, uh, Happier, our first producer was a moderator and he would have like one piece of fine chocolate every other day. And his mother gave him this box of like beautiful fine chocolate and it would stale because he would just have like one piece every other day. I'm like, I would eat the whole thing the first day. Yes. I mean, I just, it's like, I might as well eat it at 8 a.m. Cause otherwise my whole day is like, what about that chocolate? <laughs> um, but he's a true moderator. And so there's no reason for moderators to try to abstain. But sometimes moderators say to me, I don't know if you hear this, it's not healthy to be so rigid. Yes. You shouldn't demonize yes. a certain food. You should follow the 80-20 rule. Life's too short to eat a brownie. And I'm like, that works for you. It doesn't work for me. And then I want to say to moderators, why don't you just go cold turkey? Why do you keep breaking the rules? Wouldn't it be easier just to take this off the table? But I have to recognize, not for moderators. They want to have three French fries. They want to have one square of fine chocolate. They want to have half a brownie. I could never have half a brownie. I feel you. <laughs> um, but before we before we close, I one, there's one last area I wanted to get into, and it may, it may be a big area, or maybe not. I don't know. I haven't. I've never asked you this before. I just wonder, as somebody who's looked at human nature and happiness for so long, what thoughts do you have in the era of Trump? People I, are unhappy, and they're and they're fighting with with each other, and the news is freaking us out. And so, whatever side you're on, there's angst and agita. So I just wondered if you had any views. Well, I think that one thing that's important to remember is back to this idea of self-management. And I think we need to find ways to manage ourselves, even in the face of if we're, our distress. Like I've talked to people who are like, oh, well, I, I started smoking again after the election. And I'm like, you need to handle 
your feelings in a way that don't make you start smoking again, because that's not helping anybody. It's only hurting. And it's you need to find a different way to respond. And for people, and I've seen this over and over just in my own life, is that many people are responding by trying to get involved. And that is a great way to take that energy and that anxiety, which is to say, I want to be part of a solution. I want to figure out how we can do something a better way. I want to stand up for my values. Um, and uh, in, in that way, I think people feel that they can redeem in some way things that they find distressing because they're like, maybe this thing has happened, but I can try to make something good from it. And whether that's working on voter registration or getting involved in political campaigns or even like, you know, trying to engage more deeply with people who have different beliefs to try to understand why do they have those beliefs? Can I try to help them understand my beliefs and why I think I'm right and they're wrong? Um, can I try to understand why they think they're right and I'm wrong? Um, you see this happening uh all over. And I think that's the most positive thing that can come from it. But I would say also, if you feel overwhelmed by just the constant stream of information, try to find ways to to manage that, whether it's only reading news or watching news for a certain amount of time or um, having times of your day that are device free or screen free, uh, finding ways to manage the incoming um, information so that you get what you need to know to be an active, involved, civic member of society, civically minded member of society. But, you know, you're not spending 10 hours a day, um, you know, because you're not learning anything an hour from from the ninth hour to the 10th hour. Um, Instead, listen to more happiness podcasts. There you go. That's one solution. Speaking of po- happiness podcasts, um, I think the the last thing I love to do is just get people to plug everything. Oh, okay. Um, so tell us about your podcast. Tell us about your books, websites, where we can follow, find Thank you on you. social media. Give it, a, give us everything. Yes, indeed. I do have a podcast um, called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which I do with my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's a very um, uh, successful television writer and producer in Hollywood. And uh, she's also very messy. So we've been having a lot of fun talking about clutter together. Um, And uh, that comes out once a week. And it's all about how to be happier, right on the nose. And then I have a website, GretchenRubin.com. And that's where you can get tons of information about all my books. And I have all kinds of discussion guides and manifestos and one pagers and charts and all kinds of things. You can listen to audiobook excerpts if you want to think of you want to listen to the audiobook or you can read an excerpt if you're wondering if a book would be interesting to you. And I'm on social media um, all over the place as Gretchen Rubin. Um, and I love to engage with listeners and readers and viewers all about happiness, good habits, human nature, mindfulness, clearing clutter, all these things. You're the best. Thank, Thank you. you. This is so fun. I love coming to talk to you. I really love having Gretchen on the show. I, I also love just talking to her at any point you know, we spend some time without microphones around chit-chatting and she just <laughs> the, the the level of the speed with which she spews out fascinating ideas is just a thing to behold so i can pretty much guarantee that this will not be gretchen's last visit to this podcast so thanks again for gretchen for to gretchen for coming on and uh more to come all right so let's do your voicemails here's number one Hi, Dan. This is Becca from San Francisco, and I've been listening to your app and your podcast for about five months now, and I've learned so much and really appreciate it. Um, In fact, I had signed up for my first silent retreat at Spirit Rock 
and Joanna Hardy is going to be one of the instructors. It's called True Belongings, and it's a six-day silent retreat. Would love anything you can share about silent retreats. I know you covered a little bit in your podcast with Sam Harris recently, um, but questions I would have, basic questions like what do you pack or even what you don't pack? Um, how do you sit across from someone at a table eating and not able to talk to them? Uh, what happens if an anxiety or panic attack happens? How is that handled at a silent retreat? So any insight you'd be willing to share, I'd love. I'm a little anxious already about it, but looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much, Dan. Bye-bye. Thank you. Those are excellent questions. Let me just say, first of all, you don't need to be anxious. You're going to be in really good hands. Uh, there are meditation retreat centers across the country, but you're going to one of uh, the absolute best, Spirit Rock, which is in, I believe, Marin County, north of San Francisco. And you're going with Joanna Hardy, who's been on this podcast before and is one of the stellar teachers on the 10% Happier app and an all-around superior human being. So uh, you are in really good hands. Let me just say, before I dive into the specific answers to your question, for those of you out there listening to this and thinking, well, I can't go on a retreat either because I can't afford it or because I don't have the time. Oh, by the way, in terms of affording it, Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock both give uh, scholarships. So if money is the issue, you can inquire about that. But anyway, there are those of you out there who just don't want to go on a retreat, can't go on a retreat, whatever. And sometimes this discussion of retreats can trigger some insecurity and doubt and make people feel like, oh, man, I'm not doing this thing, so I'm a failed meditator. No, that is not true. You can absolutely be a head held sorry head held high card carrying bona fide meditator if you're doing 5 to 10 minutes most days or just a few minutes some days uh with an aspiration to eventually get to a daily practice it, it, it's it's all good meditation like all healthy habits it's it's hard to establish give yourself a break you don't need to go all the way to a meditation retreat in order to consider yourself somebody who's uh, doing the thing and accessing its many, many benefits. All right, that caveat out of the way, I do think retreats are amazing and they can be a great way to put the practice into your you know, molecules so that you are, so that the, ha- the habit is deeply ingrained. So I went on, on my first meditation retreat after a year of five to 10 minutes a day. And from there, it really, you know, I had an experience on that retreat. I hated it at first and then I, really loved it, and then I hated it again. But that loving it moment really instilled in me, for lack of a less loaded word, faith that there is true depth to this practice and put my practice on on steroids. So in terms of your advice, what should you pack? You're going to Spirit Rockets in California. Um, I assume it's soon. You said it's soon, so it's going to be kind of almost spring you know, it's not going to be super cold weather. If you're going to the Insight Meditation Society in uh, in Massachusetts, I would recommend winter clothes and boots at this time of year uh, because you're going to want to go out and walk in the woods and you're, you're not going to want to be freezing. But Spirit Rock, uh, you know, I think you're packing for reasonably warm weather with some maybe chilly mornings and nights. You're up early and up late, so it'll be a little chilly. A lot of sweatpants because you're sitting around. Essentially, when I go on retreat, I pack just tons of sweatpants. Tons of sweatpants so and sweatshirts because you want to be comfortable when you're sitting in the chair. I, 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 I don't think you're going to want like tight-fitting, tailored, tapered khakis or anything like that. In terms of sitting across from somebody at a table and eating without looking them in the eye, I, for me, I mean, yes, it's weird. The whole, the whole thing is weird, but 
the hardest part is not all of the stuff around like not talking or being in a room full of people eating and nobody's looking at each other. To me, that's all strange. The hardest part is just like meditating all day, every day. That is very, very challenging. And so all the things that I think – and I'm speaking for myself – all the things that I thought would be weird going in, like not talking, et cetera, et cetera, that, that's not the issue. The issue is the practice itself is very challenging. It's incredibly rewarding and worthwhile, but that to me is what is always the hard part. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're going to be eating across from somebody, and, and the whole point is to be eating silently and mindfully and actually doing this radical thing that we very rarely do in our regular lives, which is taste your food, maybe put the fork down between bites so you're not like – simultaneously chewing while hunting around the plate for your next uh, mouthful. Uh, I mean, that's the whole, the whole retreat is to, you know, break these lifelong habits of autopilot, uh, being in on autopilot. And so eating is just a part of that. It's a little awkward, but I, it's not insurmountable. You will survive that. In terms of your, uh, I think your greatest fear was anxiety. And if you had an anxiety attack or a panic attack, and let me assure you, they are well set up to deal with this. And all, all, there are I, – I, I can't remember about Spirit Rock specifically, but at Insight Meditation Society, there's like a special phone you can pick up. I think it's a red phone, and there's somebody there all the time to answer your call if you're in distress. You, they'll give you instructions about this at Spirit Rock. I can't remember what the phone looks like, but there are systems in place to deal with people who are freaking out. I don't think it's super common, but it does happen, and they're aware of it because when you slow down and you're not, you're no longer surrounded by the distractions, the various addictions and self-medications of daily life, your TV, your Twitter feed, your glass of wine, it's, uh, your, your ability to go shopping, all the things we do to keep ourselves away from – our primordial sadness or fear or whatever. Yeah, things things can come up. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it can happen. And the, the people who run this retreat, they're professionals. They've been doing this for a decade. They're, they'll be right there for you. So you can go talk to somebody in the main office, pick up a phone if it's an emergency in the middle of the night, go talk to your teachers. You're going to be met, I believe, with profound levels of expertise and compassion. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. One piece of advice that I would give you just that I would give myself going into every retreat, I never follow this advice. I always have to relearn this lesson, which is, uh, I guess, maybe two parts of it. One is, you know, emotions are going to come up. And I, you know, I know because I've written books about this and I talk about it on the podcast all the time that the important thing is not what you're feeling. The important thing is not to get so to analyze why am I so sad? Is it because this happened to me when I was seven or whatever? The important thing is to know clearly that you are feeling a thing and to investigate it mindfully, not to wallow in it, but to see oh, what kind of thoughts is, are, uh, is this emotion provoking? What, how's it show, how is it showing up in my body? And then to see its impermanence. And that is incredibly powerful to see that these various mind states come and go and we don't need to be owned by them. But, of course, for me, in my first couple of days of retreat, whatever comes up, often it's some sadness, this, like, ancient homesickness that comes up for me in the first couple of days. And then I, I always get stuck, and then some teacher in the evening Dharma talk reminds me, oh, yeah, that it's, it's just about seeing these things come and go, and, and, and then I breathe a sigh of relief. The other piece of advice I would give you is don't push too hard. Now, this is me talking to myself, really, because I don't know you and, and you may not be this type, but I find that I'm, I'm just 
trying to advance my practice, trying to win, trying to do the best job possible. And I'm expecting to achieve whatever results I might have achieved on my last retreat or or achieve whatever results I might have read about in a book. And and this is like some weird video game where you can't advance as long as you want to advance. You have to shift into this odd mode of dropping your expectations, dropping desire, which is a classic hindrance in the Buddhist schema. And when you do that, the whole thing starts to move. And that's easier said than done and can often take days of banging your head up against the wall, again, in my experience. So that was those are the two. That's a lot of advice I've given you. You probably won't remember all of it, but um, good luck to you. I'm excited for you, and I think it's a really great thing to do. Next voicemail. Here we go. Hi, Dan. This is Marilee from California, and my question is about meditating with pets. So I have two cats, and occasionally while I'm meditating, they like to meander over and start looking for some petting. And I'm just wondering how to sort of incorporate the cats into my meditation practice when they need attention. I've tried putting them in another room, but that doesn't work so well as they just sort of sit in the other room and cry, and I live in a fairly small condo. So that's my question. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Not an uncommon problem if you're meditating at home. So I'll give you uh, some thoughts. Let me, let me start with a story. I heard a meditation teacher. I was on a retreat years ago, and there's a meditation teacher. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Matthew Danielle. Uh, Matthew, we've never met, so I hope you don't mind me stealing your story and probably mangling it. But I remember Matthew telling a story about meditating in his backyard in a tent. And he had these very aggressive cats who were just meowing and going crazy and trying to get in this damn tent. And he was pissed. And it was very annoying. And it was showing up in his meditation. And he was noticing his annoyance and listening to their noises, et cetera, et cetera. And this drama went on for a while until he just let the cats in. And once he let the cats in, they just sat next to him while he meditated, and it was just fine. And Matthew was telling the story on two levels, as you might imagine. One is, you know, how to deal with your animals when they want to get in while you're meditating. And the other is, this is a great analogy for how we are with our difficult emotions. You know, we spend our whole whole, – I mentioned that often on retreat I experience this kind of powerful resuscitation of the homesickness I felt when I was on – when I was at summer camp when I was a little boy and – I, I realized that I've probably been running from that feeling my whole life, and I don't want to let it in on retreat. But actually, when you let it in, when you just stop fighting it, it uh, pretty much you know curls up in your lap. It's it's the fighting it that feeds it, and yeah. So I always thought that was such an interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that. Maybe I'll put that in my next book. Um. Anyway, thank you, Matthew, for that uh, story. I'll give you credit, I promise. Um, but 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 I th- as it pertains to your cats, that's the advice I would give you. And I do this with my cats. I have three rescue cats. If you get cats, by the way, go to your local uh, shelter and, and save a life. And uh, you know, sometimes they come over and sit in my lap, and like that's cool. If you're doing, you know, if I'm doing breath meditation where I really want to be focused on the feeling of my breath coming in and going out, that can be, you know, they can be a little distracting in that sense because maybe they're purring or I feel their approach or I feel the heft of them on my lap. So often if that's, if they're there, I will switch over to an open awareness or noting practice where I'm 
just noting whatever arises. So maybe I feel my breath one moment, or I notice I'm thinking, or I notice the sound of the cat purring, or the heft of the cat on my quadriceps, or the or the cat moving, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and this, obviously, all of this advice pertains to dogs. Yeah, so I I would try that if they're being crazy. Like I have one cat, Toby, who's just a pain, uh, and it's, you know sometimes he'll you know like try to chew on my hair or something like that. Well, then homie's got to go. And I'll lock him in another room and, uh, you know, hopefully he doesn't cry too much. You can also, if they're crying, if if you if they're misbehaving so badly in the room that you do need to lock them in another room and they're crying, I would uh, download some white noise to your phone and play that next to the door and it will probably drown it out. All right. Hopefully that's enough practical advice for dealing with the, the varmints in your house. Uh, I love the voicemails. Keep them coming. I promise. I promise. I promise. I know I've been saying this for months, but we're going to get actual meditation teachers on here soon to answer the questions so you're not stuck with me. Uh, before I go, I just want to thank everybody who's involved in the show. Ryan Kessler, the producer, Samuel Johns, who uh, works for 10% Happier and has come on to help us uh, up our game in lots of ways. Big thanks to Samuel as well. And thanks to everybody at ABC News Radio who makes this show possible, including Steve Jones who runs this, this joint. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, I'm going to finish with our my weekly plea, which is please write us a review, rate us, talk about us on social media. All that stuff helps us in the rankings and really helps ensure that we can continue doing this work, which I will speak for myself. I love to do. Thank you for listening. See you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.